0: Again, everybody, please take your Bible and find James 5, James chapter 5, and we're going to begin this morning by reading James 5, verses 1 to 6. James 5, verses 1 to 6. The word of the Lord reads, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who who did the harvesting, has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Today we resume a short series from this passage called a word for the wealthy. In verses 1 to 6 of chapter 5, we find a section of Scripture that deals with the very relevant yet controversial issue today. Money. If I was a topical, liberal, charismatic, health, wealth, and prosperity preacher, I'd be awfully tempted to skip this portion of Scripture and never even mention it. Because if those kinds of preachers dealt with this text the way we are about to deal with it now, they would not be very prosperous. In fact, there could be no counter argument to the very real argument that this text as a whole particularly applies to them. Because they have acquired their wealth via charlatanry, which is the scamming of innocent people out of money by making false, empty promises. Again, as we said last week, to be clear, merely possessing an abundance of money is not bad per se. Living comfortably and partaking in periodic recreation is not sinful by any means, just to be clear. Money in and of itself is not the issue here. Money in and of itself is not the issue in James five went to six the issue is the wrongful gain storage and expenditure of money in james's day there were faithful believers who had to work with work for or perhaps even fellowship with very wealthy people and evidently some of those rich people among the diaspora unrighteously accumulated vast amounts of wealth wealth Stockpiled it for their own selfish desires and squandered it for self-indulgent sinful living. And so that's the historical context of our passage today. So keep that in mind. I've divided this part of scripture into three distinct parts. Which the first two we examined last Lord's Day. The first was. The warning to the rich in verse one. James has the tone of a weeping prophet. giving a prediction of painful, fatal, condemnatory, eternal punishment. That will be brought upon themselves for their sinful use of money. And therefore, James commands them to intensely grieve over that reality. Then the second part of this passage was the futility of the rich, verses 2 and 3. In those verses, we are candidly reminded of the fleetingness of earthly treasures. They are all being rusted, moth-eaten, and corroded, which should cause us not to make false gods out of tangible things. Everything we own, whether it be a pet, a house, a car, a family heirloom, and yes, even in my case, a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Somebody felt compelled to remind me last weekend after I preached how much I treasure my motorcycle. But even that, I'll confess, as much as I do value my big boy toy, I don't idolize it. And if I do, I have a kind and faithful, wise wife to remind me that I'm flirting with that line. So the issue here again is everything we own will be left behind when God calls us to appear before his throne. Now we will examine the third part of this section of Scripture aimed at the rich, which is the accusations against the rich. First, again, we saw the warning to the rich, the futility ...of the rich, and now the accusations against the rich, verses 4 to 6. These accusations, at the very least, should be taken from us as cautions at the present time. Because we live in a culture where we all live with plenty. As Christians, we all must constantly remind ourselves that whatever riches we have accumulated are temporary and we cannot hold on to them forever. And again to be crystal clear regarding the main point of the series is that it's God's will to use your wealth for good. The wealth you have is not to be used in this way. It should not be uselessly hoarded, unjustly gained, self-indulgently spent or ruthlessly acquired. If a person's wealth is handled in those sinful ways, the things we see in James 5, 4-6 will become evident in their character. In other words, they, like the rich, unjust rich among the diaspora, can be legitimately guilty of corruption, self-indulgence, gluttony, and injustice. Those are the four accusations that we see in this text here. We'll unpack those today. Beginning with the guilt of corruption. Which is the first accusation James levels at the unrighteous rich. The guilt of corruption. Let's read verse 4 again. James says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, some argue that the word you see translated withheld in the NASB is better rendered as defraud. And perhaps maybe your translation says defraud. I would agree that that is the best way to say it because the Greek word literally means to deprive from. Now, if you're depriving someone of something, you are withholding something from them that's rightfully theirs, right? So James is talking about the corruption of the rich landowners that was evidenced by their cheating their workers out of the wages they deserved. We also know that God has never been pleased with foremen who deny their laborers or employees their earnings. Again, this verse carries an extremely heavy Old Testament tone. Malachi 3 verse 5 says, So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, and those who defraud laborers of their wages, says the Lord Almighty. Leviticus 19.13 Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Also note Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 to 15. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your own towns. Pay him the wages each day before sunset because he is poor and counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So this idea of defrauding laborers, Withholding labors their wages is something that Jews have always had to deal with. And so we see through James's writing and a brief look at Old Testament texts, rich people have the tendency to take advantage of the less fortunate. This is not a new practice, as is evident how this this practice carried into New Testament time. And sadly, It hasn't changed even to today in our culture, has it? Perhaps you've experienced it yourself. Perhaps you've done a a, a job, a labor, something for somebody that promised you pay, but then at the end did not pay you. I've experienced that. When I was in high school, I wanted to be nothing but a carpenter. I liked being outside and I couldn't find myself... Or see myself being stuck behind a desk. So I thought a career as a carpenter would be a good option. And thankfully where I went to school in Illinois. They had this program called building trades. Where 11th and 12th graders could knock out a few basic classes in the morning. And then spend the rest of the day at a real construction site. Building a house from the ground up. It was a very educational experience. And so when summer came between my junior and senior year, my building trades teacher liked me and he, he referred me to a private contractor who was in the business of building custom homes in our town. And so I jumped on the opportunity to get my very first real life job as a carpenter and training. I remember arriving to the job site on the first day feeling excited feeling manly, and just eager to learn. But when I got there, what I actually experienced was not at all what I expected. What I expected was to be taken under the wing of a skilled, professional, seasoned tradesman and be shown the ropes of the construction, construction industry. Instead, what I experienced was the demeaning and harsh, unprofessional, foul mouth treatment of a corrupt criminal. He made me feel like a total idiot for not knowing how to use a tool. He ridiculed me for not working at the pace he thought was appropriate. He had very little interest in actually training me how to frame a home. He just wanted a slave-like kid to pick up trash and move that pile of lumber over there. And now, I can't remember how many days it actually lasted, but I remember on the way to that job site one early morning, pulling into the parking lot of a gas station, putting my truck in park, and I just sat there sobbing like a demoralized child. Somehow, I worked up the courage to quit and ask to be paid for the hours I worked. In a not-so-professional manner, he said, you'll get your money. I walked away. So I went home and waited. You know, as a 17 year old kid, the four or five hundred bucks that I was owed was a lot of money. Do you think that check ever came? It didn't. Weeks turned into months, and then my mom, being a law student herself, encouraged me to go speak to an attorney. And, uh, I was given the shocking, harsh reality check when I found out that this corrupt criminal was a criminal because I was not the only one he owed money to. He had a laundry list of people trying to get what they were owed. So corruption is everywhere. It's nothing new. And perhaps if you haven't dealt with it before, you may... Later in life. I look back now and realize that men like him are the ones that need to be warned about what James says in the coming verse in verse four. Look at verse four. James goes on to say the cries of the laborers cry out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Now that word Sabaoth is kind of strange. It's not Sabbath. Sabaoth. It is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means army. Another way that's rendered typically is Lord of hosts. Hosts is a translation of Sabaoth. Here, the NASB just transliterates it. It means army, which paints the picture of God being a commanding general on the battlefield of his judgment with countless battalions of angels ready for war. That's what should come into your mind when you see the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of hosts. Again, it alludes to God's role as a military officer charging into battle with an angelic army. Isaiah 34, verse 4, So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion on, and on its hill. So we're, com- we're confronted with a pretty harsh truth here, aren't we? God is a God of many attributes. He is a God of love. He's a God of hate. He's a God of mercy and grace. He's also a God of justice and wrath. He's a God of kindness. He's also a God of holiness. And here, it's revealed that God is also a God of vengeance. Vengeance is one of his attributes. He will repay unrepentant wicked men with his wrath for something man has done. Romans twelve nineteen, which is a quotation of Deuteronomy 32, 35, excuse me. It says, Paul says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then James here in chapter five, verse four, reminds us. ...of the truth that God is the omniscient and omnipotent avenger. Just like he avenged Abel's blood in Genesis 4... ...God will likewise deal out settled anger towards sin... ...expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. That is a gospel truth. Not the least of which... Among those who will experience God's vengeance are, back to the present context, the unjust rich. So how do we apply this? How do we apply all this talk about vengeance and rich people and poor people not getting paid? Well, simply put, don't handle your finances corruptly. Don't handle your finances corruptly. You know what happens. Professing believers are found out to be involved in financial scandal all the time, aren't they? Shamefully, pastors who walk onto a platform like this and stand behind a pulpit much grander than this get caught in financial scandal. People with access to church assets have stole large amounts of money and disappeared. You know, to really bring it home, that's why I don't have anything to do with the monetary transfer, deposit, exchange, or withdrawal in this church. If something ever goes awry in this church with regard to money, the first person that most people are putting their finger at is the pastor, right? The only full-time guy. But not SVBC. If something goes wrong with the money don't come after me because I ain't touching it In this church and a lot of other churches Like ours have a system of checks and balances that doesn't require the senior pastor to micromanage the operations and praise god Ever since my arrival. I have not had to do that I thank god for that because I know my own heart And truthfully It is just as susceptible to the temptation of riches as anyone I'm not going to kid myself and I'm not going to be fake. Money has the power to corrupt the professing believer no matter where he is in the sanctification process. So we all must be vigilant in this area. Guard your heart that money does not corrupt you. Amen? The second accusation that James levels at the unrighteous rich is the guilt of self-indulgence. They were... Guilty of corruption, and now we see in verse 5, they are also guilty of self-indulgence. Look at the second part of verse 5. It says, you lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. So James here uses two verbs to depict sinful, self-indulgent lifestyle. The first, to live luxuriously, is not always used negatively in the Bible, Because I've tried to make clear in this series, living in quiet comfort is not bad. So don't feel guilty for that. But the context, in this context, luxurious living has to do with living that leads to debauchery. When a person becomes consumed with the uncontrollable pursuit of pleasure. A life without self-denial and self-control soon becomes self-indulgence. In every area. The second verb that James uses, to live a life of wanton pleasure, is more exclusively negative. It carries the idea of self indulgence in eating and drinking. And its only other biblical occurrence is in 1 Timothy 5, verse 6, where Paul wrote, But the widow who lives for pleasure, who lives for pleasure, is dead even while she lives. And then Ezekiel 16:49 where the people of Sodom are condemned for being overfed and unconcerned for not helping the rich or excuse me for not helping the poor and needy. So these two verses put together is simply intended to emphasize the immense degree of idolatrous extravagant living that the wealthy landowners exhibited. And so think of the wealthy people in our day who all they do is eat and drink the best money can buy on a continual basis at the expense of their employees' hard work. Important qualifier there. That's the kind of rich people that James is talking about in this whole section. And now for a moment, I want to draw your attention to an easily overlooked phrase in verse 5. On the earth. Those three little words contributes to these negative connotations, suggesting a contrast between the pleasures of the unrighteous rich have enjoyed on this present life on earth and the torment that awaits them in eternity. A very similar nuance occurs in Abraham's words to the rich man in Jesus' parable in Luke sixteen, verse twenty-five. Jesus said speaking on behalf of Abraham in his parable, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. So again, we see to the teaching of Christ that often the unrighteous rich, though they experience unceasing pleasure now, will experience unceasing pain and torment later. Again, it's not wrong to enjoy the pleasure of this world. It's not wrong to eat a steak dinner. It's not wrong to own a Harley Davidson. It's not wrong to go to the spa. And my wife says, praise the Lord, amen, right? But it is wrong to live for living in luxury. Does that make sense? It's wrong to live for living in luxury. And you know that you're living... For living in wanton pleasure. If you honestly couldn't function in life. Without the spa. What if you lost your job. And had to sell your home. And move into a small apartment. How would that affect you? What if you had to sell your car. And take public transportation. Or even worse. Walk or ride a bike. What if you couldn't afford to shop at Costco anymore? You know, that's a privilege, right? The majority of people, though it might not appear that way in Issaquah, the majority of people in America cannot afford to go to Costco and spend 200 bucks on five things. Growing up, we never went to Costco. I didn't even know what Costco was when I moved here. We have to remember that. If you couldn't afford a shop at Costco, how would that affect you? If you had to, you know, just go to Safeway once a week and spend a hundred bucks on the basic necessities. That's how I grew up. If you had to, would you experience a crisis of faith and feel overwhelmed with depression over the loss of, the, of those luxurious things? If so, then you have to wonder, am I really living to live in luxury rather than living for Christ? That's something to think about as we deal with James's second stern accusation against the unrighteous rich. The third accusation that James levels at the unrighteous rich sort of overlaps with the second. Again in verse 5, they were guilty of the sin of gluttony. They were guilty of gluttony. Look at verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now that sounds like a very harsh statement, does it not? More than that, it sounds kind of scary. The day of slaughter? What does that mean? Well, first of all, we need to think about what it means to fatten the heart. And then we need to find out what the day of slaughter is, okay? So first, we need to see that the fat in the heart, it's, it's simply a metaphor which is intended to create the image in our mind of an animal that exists to eat, to get fat as possible, so it will produce the highest amount of meat as possible. For example, a cow or a turkey or whatever animal bred for human consumption. It unknowingly eats and eats and eats until one day, out of nowhere, they are walked in, they are walked in or carried into the place of slaughter. One summer, I worked at a turkey farm, and it's just amazing to observe these creatures, do nothing but walk around and eat. And then one day we showed up, put them all in a cart, and hauled them off to the processing place where we butchered them. So the image here is one of a man who is totally and wholeheartedly distracted with worldly pleasure, pleasure to the point of bird-brained ignorance. Bird-brained. You like that adjective? I said that because birds really are one of the dumbest animals. I'm not saying that to be mean. They just are. Now... Now that we understand that metaphor, what is a day of slaughter? Now, it's not easy to teach this stuff. Even those who know me well know that I don't have a fear of man when it comes to biblical doctrine. But it still doesn't make it easy to get up here in front of people who probably won't like it or might not understand it when I'm done. So I'm going to do my best here. If we consider the context of verse 3 where the term the last days is mentioned, and then in verse 7, where the coming of the Lord is mentioned, James has in mind here, referring to the day of slaughter, as the eschatological point in time. In other words, as one commentator suggests, the day of slaughter becomes virtually a technical term to denote the return of the glory of Christ at the end of history. And so it's, Therefore, likely that the day of slaughter is a vivid depiction of the day of judgment, capital J. In Hebrews, in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 30, it bolsters this interpretation as it also speaks of the day of great slaughter in reference to final judgment. Listen to this on every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of great judgment. When the towers fall. So, the day of judgment, day of great slaughter, same thing. But now, to use more common and familiar language, okay? Hopefully, to help you understand this more precisely. Know that the day of slaughter, the day of great judgment, is synonymous with the second coming of Christ, which differs from the rapture. Okay, a little eschatology lesson here this morning. At the rapture, Christ meets his own in the air. In the day of slaughter, he comes with them to earth. At the rapture, there is no judgment. In the day of slaughter, it's all judgment. And so don't confuse the rapture with the second coming of Christ which is the day of great slaughter, which is the day of judgment. We read a detailed account of what will take place on the day of slaughter, the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19. But time does not permit me to ask you to turn there, so I would encourage you to read it later, especially if you haven't read it in a long time. Revelation 19. Now, the main point that James is getting at in this latter accusation of verse 5 is this. As the unrighteous rich are selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and wastefully spending it on their pleasures, they are incurring greater guilt for the day of judgment, which will be dispensed through Jesus Christ in his second coming. They are like cattle being fattened for the kill. Now that's a pretty weighty accusation, wouldn't you say? Very sober, very weighty, doctrinal weighty accusation. So I hope that whets your appetite, no pun intended. I'm not good at using puns, so I didn't try. See how much there is in that, that little phrase. Fatten your hearts for the day of slaughter. That's that's that just scratches the surface of that truth. But we need to move on here. The second and le- excuse me, the fourth and last accusation that James levels at the unrighteous rich is the guilt of injustice. The guilt of injustice. Verse six. It says, you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. James here in this verse, verse 6, accuses the unrighteous rich of murdering an innocent man. The righteous one refers to no particular person, but to a typical follower of God who experienced fatal persecution at the hands of the wicked rich. Now, the question that I asked myself when I was preparing this exposition is why would a rich man have reason to kill? They're rich. They have it all. They have the clothes, they have the food, they have the wine, they have all the things they can eat and more, right? Why kill? I mean, don't we ask similar questions today? Like, how can a multi millionaire professional athlete become enslaved to sorrow and loneliness and depression? Or how could a famous actor like Robin Williams? You guys remember hearing when Robin Williams committed suicide? Someone who is filthy rich and somebody who's beloved by the masses. Why would he take his own life? But like we've established, money has a tendency to have a corrupting influence on the heart and the mind and the soul. If riches don't cure depression, worry, anxiety, and loneliness, it will not cure a greedy and ambitious heart. The wicked rich landowners killed the righteous men because if the righteous men aren't around, there's no one to be indebted to there's no one to pay. And if there's no one to pay, they get to keep it all for themselves. And they are murderers by failing to pay the mowers of the of the field because without being paid, they starve. In James's day, as we mentioned last week, there were those who were among the elite wealthy social class. There was no middle class. And then there was the low class who had to labor just to make it to the day. And often that meant that they depended on the immediate pay just for their daily bread. And so if the rich corruptly held back the wages to do its work in class, then they would only survive so long without food. So James ends this section. With the accusation that they have killed the righteous man. And they have done nothing wrong. Which makes what the rich men did all the more sinister. The victims of the wealthy rich were truly undeserving of such evil demise. Because at the end of verse 6, James says, he does not resist you. They died unjustly, and James reveals that God is keeping record of it. Corruption, self-indulgence, gluttony, and injustice. These are all things the rich landowners were guilty of. And without question, we see the exact same characteristics in many rich people today, don't we? Why? Why? Why do we see these characteristics of corruption, self-indulgence, gluttony, and injustice among rich people who, from our perspective, sometimes we think they have everything? Or haven't we ever thought, man, if I had a million dollars, I'd be set, man. I'd, I'd have it made. But the truth of the, of the matter is, though some things might be easier and more enjoyable, that would not cure your problems. You would still be a sinful person living in a sinful world with problems. So to wrap up the series today, we're confronted again with the truth that money has the tendency to cause bad things to happen. The kind of fruit that we see in this passage is a result of the love of money. And I just want to give you a couple takeaways uh, to apply this whole section a little bit. Keep in mind that the main point that James wants us to know is that the selfish pursuit of wealth that fails to take account the reality of God and his will for humanity is sin. Where there is ongoing, unrepentant practice of sin, the reality that God is watching and keeping record is suppressed. And when a man begins to suppress the truth in his unrighteousness, sooner or later, what does Romans 1 say God will do? It says that he will give them over. Those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, God will give them over to a depraved mind. Secondly, if God has given you wealth, or maybe he will later. Remember that you are or will be accountable for what you do with it. As we've seen clearly in this text, the abundance of money has the tendency to corrupt people and enslave people ultimately. The rich people can become consumed with saving money, hoarding materials that will never be used, and spending it on the pleasures of the flesh for life. Time and time again, we see this play out, even in churches. And that's precisely why Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice not money is the root of evil. The love of money is the root of all different kinds of evil. And now let me close, let me finish this with a quote from a very insightful comment that I read in my study here. Quote. In our western world. Where amassing material wealth. Is not only condoned but admired. We Christians need to come to grips with the point. In James five to 6 And ask ourselves seriously. When do we have too much? When do we have too much? Father, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to assemble and be confronted with these fundamental truths. We're blessed to live in a country and a culture where we don't have to depend on our daily wage to eat. We live in a culture that does not allow employers and masters to deprive us of our wages. And so there's a sense in which it's hard for us to comprehend what you've said through James here. But we do know that money can corrupt our hearts. Money can be a source of extreme tension and division. So I pray that we at SVBC will love you far more than we love money. I pray that we will take our Great Commission seriously and elevate that above a life of comfort and luxury. May we be balanced in our thinking. And may we repent of any sort of idolatrous action which may reveal a heart that loves money. Help us, Father, to be sanctified and to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.